Welcome back. Thanks for coming. Wow, what a, what a great morning it's been already, and truly praise the Lord for that time of worship, and what a perfect setup and introduction and the preparation of our hearts for what we have in front of us this morning. So today we are here to celebrate Jesus Christ, amen? amen. Can I remind you today that Jesus Christ is the eternal God, the Son. In eternity past, he's referred to as the Word of God. The Bible says that he is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. You know that all of the attributes of the Godhead and the Trinity, all of the attributes of God, are fully present in each person of the Trinity. Jesus Christ, as such, is the creator of all things, and by him all things consist. He's all-knowing, yet with all that he knows, especially about us, He's all-loving. He's our great Redeemer. And the Bible says that in the fullness of times, when that time had come, that God took on a physical body. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God as the second person of the Godhead. John 1.14, the Word was made flesh, and dwelt among us. And 1 Timothy 3.16 is the mystery of godliness that God himself was manifest in the flesh. So as such, for 33 and a half years, Jesus Christ showed us all how God would live if God was a man among sinful men. And although he is indeed God, he lived his life on earth as a man, 100% man, fully yielded to the Spirit of God. The Bible says that he surrendered his will to his Father's will, that he surrendered his life for our lives, and he surrendered his body to be tortured and broken and his blood shed. And he did all that for us. He did it all for us. We've been studying the book of 1 Corinthians, and not long ago we were in chapter number 15, where at the beginning of that chapter we saw that Jesus Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. The, the Bible defines that series of, event, of events, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as the gospel. And that gospel is the very thing that provides for us eternal life. After Jesus Christ's bodily resurrection, he lived among his disciples for 40 days, and he left them one overriding commandment, one commission to be carried out. And that commission, as it's written in the book of John, chapter 20 and verse 21, arguably the least referenced version of the Great Commission, Jesus phrased it this way, as my Father has sent me, even so send I you. In other words, we could say, go do what you've seen me do. And he could say that because, not because he was God, but because he was man. And living as a man, fully and completely yielded to the Spirit of God, and obviously successfully having never given in to sin. After those 40 days, he ascends back up into heaven. And so, currently, he's gone physically from this earth. So Jesus Christ, who is fully complete, who is fully God, fully embodies all that God is. He's a body, he's a soul, and he's a spirit. But after that ascension, well... He's not physically here anymore, or is he? Because actually, Jesus Christ didn't leave us alone. He fully and completely replaced himself. He replaced his very spirit with the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost. He replaced his very soul 
the description and, and outpouring and revelation of his mind and will and emotions, well, that's the Word of God. The written Word of God is the very soul of the living Word of God. And his body, well, you know who that is. It's the church. His body is the church. We have the full manifestation of God available to us, the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, and the church. So now, as a result of that, a new spiritual entity exists. It's called the body of Christ, the church. And the Bible very clearly says that we are the body of Christ, speaking corporately, and speaking individually, well, we're members in particular. We are the body, corporately. And well, just as in a physical body, the members cannot function properly alone, detached from the body, well, so it is in Christ. Now, these things that I've reminded you of this morning, these are biblical facts, and they are not in dispute. They are clear revelation of the Word of God. Therefore, we as the church serve corporately as the only current visible form of God on this earth today. Let me say that again. We, the church, serve as the only current visible form of God on this earth today. Ask yourself this question. How do you think we're doing? Maybe ask yourself this question. How do you think God thinks we're doing? So let me ask you another question. Knowing all these things, why don't believers in Jesus Christ live their lives and make their decisions accordingly? How is it that we can embrace and say amen to all of those facts and yet somehow, after having understood it, seem, in many cases, to be unaffected? Well, this was the very problem that we saw in the church in Corinth. It was selfishness. They didn't discern the corporate body of Christ like they were supposed to. And when I say discern, I mean they didn't properly understand it. They didn't properly differentiate it. They didn't properly judge it to be who it truly is. They didn't discern the Lord's body. And as a result, they made their decisions. They behaved with themselves in mind, first and foremost. And so there's a progression. And we've seen this in our study through the book of 1 Corinthians, that selfishness leads to carnality. Selfishness leads to carnality, living your life in the power of the flesh. And carnality, well, that leads to temptation. The more carnal you are, well, there's more and more temptations that are going to creep in and take a hold of your flesh. The temptation then leads to sin. The sin leads to weakness in your life. You don't have any power anymore, and ultimately, it leads to judgment. And this is the progression that man is on when he gets away from God's plan and well, he focuses on himself against God's design. So Paul writes this first letter to the Corinthians. And as we saw over the last 18 months, 1 Corinthians is a ridiculously practical book on Christian living. Although there is some doctrinal teaching to be learned, it is not primarily a doctrinal book. It's not a book to teach us necessarily some new things but to show us how to live our lives. And as we studied the book of 1 Corinthians, we saw that the overarching theme was, as we termed it, the power of community. We said that we is greater than me. And that's easy to remember, and a lot of you maybe knew that I was going to say it before I said it, but, well, if that's the case, and having learned all these things, well, what difference has it made? Today we're going to take a look at chapter number 11. And we could argue that chapter number 11 is the most important chapter in 1 Corinthians because it's the chapter that shows us how we can make sure that we apply the theme of the book. A lot of the chapters show us the theme 
and in different examples of it. And a lot of chapters have a lot of wonderful things to teach, but chapter 11 specifically shows us how we make sure that we put into application in our lives the priority of the body, we, over my personal priorities, me. We have to keep the unity and we have to work together as one. So today we're going to revisit chapter number 11 and we're going to look at the Lord's Supper or as I've given the title, Communion with Christ. So if you'll follow along, I'm going to read in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. We're going to start in verse 20 and we're going to go down to verse 31. When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, everyone taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunken. What? Have ye not houses to eat and drink in? Or despise ye the church of God, and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves... We should not be judged. Well, that's what today is all about. So let's just take a second. Let's bow our heads. Let's talk to the Lord, and then we'll look at some things in some more detail. And Heavenly Father, as we come before you this particular morning and we have this table in front of us, Lord, we desire to sup with you together. We desire sweet communion with you. We desire to reinforce our belief and our commitment and our understanding of who you are and who we are because of you and who we are corporately because of you and how very, very important all of that is. I pray, Lord Jesus, that as we go through these scriptures and many are reminded of things they knew and maybe some are learning for the first time that we would seriously hear and admonish and we would take to heart the importance of this message and what we have in front of us. Speak, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to see three different things as we come through this, and the first is the condition, the condition of this church here, and this is the first three verses. It starts out by saying, When ye come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, every one taketh before other his own supper. And one is hungry and another is drunken. So the purpose of the Lord's Supper is not to eat it. You say, well, that sounds weird. Okay, well, the idea is it's not about the food. And at that time, they would have more likely had an entire meal that they would have shared. And during the course of the meal, as Jesus did with his disciples in the Passover, we'll see that in a minute, they would have stopped and, well, remembered the Lord or whatever. And he... What had happened in Corinth is that the Corinthian believers were so selfish, they were saying, hey, it's food time, let's run and go to the food time. And you know how it works in churches, you have some food and all of a sudden a lot of more people are faithful, aren't they, to showing up and being a part of it. Uh, it's not, you know, it's not a ploy we are unaware of to get you here from time to time, if we'll feed you, the way to a man's heart, you know how it goes. So the Corinthian church, they were rushing to the table. And as in any good church fellowship fashion, they were doing, I imagine, the, the plate balancing act. I've never seen people do a better job of balancing more food higher and higher on a plate than they can at a church open buffet. <laughs> <laughs> and so many were full, 
And others came, and there wasn't anything left. And they were hungry. And Paul says, yeah, that, that's not right. That's not right. They were displaying their selfishness with two obvious sins. One, taking excess for themselves. And two, leaving nothing for others. One is hungry, another is drunken. So Paul rebukes them for this display of selfishness. In front of the entire church body, they were doing it. Where it says, what? Have ye not houses to eat and drink in? Are you really showing up here to gorge yourself? Can't you get a bite to eat back home? It's not the Lord's Supper when you're gathered together, it's not about the food. It's not about eating. That's not what it's about. Because when it is, well, you despise the church of God. And you shame others who have not. I praise you not. Now, here in our church, most of you have been with us. You've heard and studied and learned at length the importance of the community of believers and various applications in your Christian lives over the last 18 months as we've studied this book. So, let me ask you, has it affected your life? Have you made any changes in your thinking and your behavior to live your life on purpose, together with others in this local body, prioritizing the congregation of believers over your own personal preferences? Have you made any changes after 18 months of being reminded over and over again this is God's will for your life? Because if you haven't, well, you're no different than the Corinthians. Every single chapter deals with some aspect of the importance of the community cooperating together, keeping unity. So in the first four chapters... We see in different ways, over and over again, how the body of Christ was divided. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. And what they were doing, basically, was emphasizing men. And they were emphasizing men over the authority of God's word. And as a result of emphasizing men over the authority of God's word, well, according to chapter 3 and verse 17... They were defiling the temple. And the temple of God is the corporate body of believers. The temple of God are ye, it says. They thought of men more highly than they ought to have thought. They thought of men more highly than it was written of them. They thought of men more highly than the writings, than the scriptures themselves. That's why in chapter number 5, they were hesitant to kick somebody out of the church, even though his sin was outrageous, and it was known publicly to all. That's why in chapter 6, they were taking their personal problems to court and before unbelievers, rather than working out their differences together as a family. It affected their marriages in chapter number 7. In chapter number 8, they had to learn not to eat meat sacrificed unto idols, even though an idol is nothing and there's nothing wrong with the meat. But they had to learn not to do it for the sole reason that it might offend a weaker brother. And the love for your brother has to be greater than the love for your liberty. Because you consider the whole more than you consider yourself. In chapter 9, they had to be reminded that they needed to willingly sacrifice and support their spiritual leaders materially and to contribute mutually to the overall care of the body. You see, your financial giving supports the ability for others to do the teaching and the nurturing and the caring of others. And if you participate in financial giving, you are doing it sacrificially. You could be using that money for other things, I understand. You offer it freely because you have chosen to value the body more than yourself and just an extra couple of lattes or whatever it might be. And in chapter 10, we saw the bad example of Israel in the wilderness with Moses in sin and complaining all the time and how, well, we shouldn't be doing that. 
I guess there really is nothing new under the sun. You know, Israel, I mean, they really had a time of it, didn't they? I mean, it was so bad with Israel that there was a time in their history just before God took them into captivity when they would actually enjoy, imagine this, they would actually come and enjoy hearing God's word and yet never intend to do anything about what they heard. That's what we read in Ezekiel chapter 33, starting in verse 30. Also thou son of man, the children of thy people still are talking against thee by the walls and in the doors of the houses. And speak one to another, every one to his brother, saying, Come, I pray you, and hear what is the word that cometh forth from the Lord. And they come unto thee as the people cometh, and they sit before thee as my people, and they hear thy words, but they will not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their heart goeth after their covetousness, their selfishness. And lo, thou art unto them as a very lovely song of one that hath a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument. For they hear thy words, but they do them not. And when this cometh to pass, lo, it will come. Then shall they know that a prophet hath been among them. Can you imagine an audience that said, Come, come, preacher, tell us the words of the Lord. We like listening to you. You've got a good way of presenting things. I think you're very skillful in what you do. I enjoy coming. I enjoy listening to you. And then regardless of what is said, thus saith the Lord, get right up, walk right out, have no intention whatsoever to apply any of it. What would you say about such a people? Well, when it's Israel, you might have something to say about it, wouldn't you? But if it's happening today, well, we don't really have much to say about that, do we? Ezekiel preaches, they enjoy it, they never change. So it's fair that you consider asking yourself, do you enjoy hearing God's word? <laughs> really, do you do anything about it? So you know what that means, don't you? That means that the condition of Corinth what was the condition of Israel. And it's the condition of today. It's the condition of the church in the last days, right before the rapture. That's what we see in Revelation chapter 3 in the church of the Laodiceans, starting in verse 14. Under the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, this group would not move to the right or to the left. They're just going to sit in the middle of the road. I'll spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And you don't even realize. Knowest not that thou art genuinely, spiritually in the sight of God. Wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. This is the Holy Spirit-inspired record of the words of Jesus Christ to the church of the Laodiceans, which represents the church of the last days before the soon coming of the rapture of the church, their true spiritual condition. Poor, wretched, miserable, blind, naked. Pretty bad condition. But he doesn't leave us in that condition. He gives counsel to the church of the Laodiceans in verse 18, where Jesus Christ says, I counsel thee to do some things. Buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. You see, the answer Jesus Christ has for the church of the Laodiceans in the last days with the selfish condition of Corinth and Israel before the captivity is to buy some things from him. That means that this one's not a freebie. Salvation was free. He paid for that. This one you're going to have to pay for. It's going to cost you something. Payable to Jesus Christ. I counsel thee to buy of me 
certain things. Verse 19 goes on, it says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. You say, I don't like the way you're talking. Well, it's out of love. The Lord Jesus Christ tells us the truth because he loves us. And he says, be zealous. If you're going to be zealous about anything, be zealous about repenting. If the shoe fits, as they say. Are you ready to repent? Are you ready to change? Verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock, Jesus says. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. So regardless of what we might judge to be the overall condition of the corporate body of Christ worldwide, the overall condition of the corporate body of Christ in this particular location, regardless of any of those things and those judgments you might make, Jesus Christ makes an individual invitation. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in and have fellowship with him. And he uses the word sup. Sup, like, not like sup, no, like, like supper, like food. Because even Jesus knows that food is fellowship. And people fellowship over a meal. That's what we do. And he says that I will sup with him. That means that if you'll open the door of your heart and life and allow Jesus to come and have fellowship with you and you're zealous and repent from your selfishness and you prioritize and discern the Lord's body, well, you're going to have the Lord's Supper. You're going to sup with the Lord. That's what you're going to do. And can I just tell you, to do that right, it's worth it. It's worth it. Back to the Laodiceans in verse 21, to him that overcometh. In other words, to the guy that will do that, will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and have sat down with my father in his throne. Now, you know, I don't want to speak out of turn against any of the other time periods of church history, but I think I could argue with you if you went back and studied all seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, and the unique rewards that are offered to each of the seven churches of that time, of that scripture, that the reward offered to the Laodiceans to actually walk into the temple and sit down on his throne with him is the greatest reward of all. That's the greatest reward. The other rewards are cool. In my humble opinion, this is the best of all. How's that even possible? Well, I don't actually know that I know, other than maybe it's because the circumstances in which we live maybe are the hardest. Maybe the spirit of the age in which we live is so subtly drawing everybody to lukewarmness that if you'll be different, the Lord says, I'll have fellowship with you. I'll sup with you. Oh, and I'll have a very special reward for you. And he ends that chapter by saying in verse 22, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Do you have an ear to hear what God's saying to you today? Since the condition of Corinth is the condition of today, well, God gave to the church, continuing now back in 1 Corinthians 11, the ordinance, the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. We're starting in verse 23. Paul says, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. So, God gave to Paul something, the ordinance for the New Testament Gentile church. Paul said, I received of the Lord, and I delivered unto you. So it's an ordinance. The word ordinance means something you're ordered to do, right? It's an ordinance. God ordered it. And there are only two ordinances given to the church. Many of you already know this. They are physical deeds to be done. But both are symbolic. They represent something spiritual. There's nothing magical in the bread and the juice. There's nothing magical in the waters of baptism. They are symbolic. They are pictures of spiritual events. 
So we have the two ordinances given to the New Testament church, water baptism, which is the public symbol of your entry into Jesus Christ in salvation. That's what water baptism pictures. I've already given my life to the Lord Jesus Christ. I now willingly publicly symbolize that by identifying with him in his death, burial, going under the water, and resurrection coming out of the water, right? And so this is a symbol. It's a public symbol of our entry into Jesus Christ at salvation. Oh, and by the way, and into the local assembly of believers, the church, because, well, that's a prerequisite for church membership as well. It's a prerequisite spiritually for your entry into the spiritual body of Christ. Well, it's a physical water baptism becomes a prerequisite for your physically joining a local body of Christ. It doesn't, the water doesn't affect your salvation. You're already saved. It's a picture. Well, the other one's the Lord's Supper, and the Lord's Supper is the public symbol of your continued fellowship with Jesus Christ and sanctification. Oh, and with your family of believers in the church. And so the Lord's Supper is the table that we visit periodically over and over again to remind ourselves of the things that we'll remind ourselves of before we're done here in a little bit so that we can keep our accounts short with Jesus Christ, so that we can make sure we clean up any little dirty corners we haven't cleaned up in a while, so that we can make sure our hearts are clean and right before the Lord to have fellowship walking with him in the light as he is in the light. It's to, it's to preserve, it's a physical picture, eating the little piece of bread and drinking a sip of the juice doesn't cause that. It's a symbol of you deciding to do that. That's what it is. But it's an ordinance, and God expects it, and he takes it very seriously. I want you to understand that both of these ordinances, they're not primarily given just for you as an individual and your relationship with Jesus Christ. They are also given for you as an individual to identify together with the entire body, which is probably why it's in the book of 1 Corinthians. It all comes from Matthew 26, 26 through 28, where Jesus Christ has the last Passover supper with his disciples just before his crucifixion. And in the course of the Jewish Passover feast, he interrupts the events of the evening and then explains this picture of this new thing, this new ordinance that will be for the church. So in Matthew 26, it says, And as they were eating, in other words, the Passover supper, Jesus and his disciples, Jesus took bread and blessed it and brake it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remissions of sins. That set of statements is exactly what Paul then repeats for you in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, in verses 24 and 25 and 26, when he said, this is the bread, it is my body, it is broken for you. He didn't die for himself, he died for us. And this is the cup of my blood, it is shed for you. And as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, whenever you do it, do it in remembrance of me. Do it remembering what I had to go through because of your sin. You see, if it weren't for our sin, he didn't ever died. He didn't have to die anyway. He didn't have any of his own. He laid down his life willingly because of ours and because of his great love. In other words, Jesus allowed his physical body to be broken so that his spiritual body would be united. He allowed his physical body to be broken so that his spiritual body, the church, would never be broken. Which then leads to the commandments, point number three. Verse 27 to 31. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Now I want you to know, I want you to pay attention. We're going to have a, a little grammar lesson very quick. 
unworthily. Okay, class. The, the L-Y words typically are adverbs, right? Typically. So this is an adverb. Unworthily is not unworthy. It's unworthily. It's how you eat and drink. It modifies the verbs to eat and drink, right? How am I doing, honey? Doing okay? All right, awesome. Unworthily is the adverb that modifies and tells you how you are supposed to go about eating and drinking, which we are going to do in a moment, and you'll want to know how to do it right, right? Well, God says do it worthily, right? It's not unworthy. And if in your mind somewhere the thought is rolling around, well, you know, I'm not worthy of Jesus Christ, well, join the club. Who is? Uh, by the way, friend, if you have received Christ as your Lord and Savior, he made you worthy because of what he did for you. So the only unworthy person, well, is an unsaved person. That's the only unworthy person. But the word is unworthily. That's the word. So in order to do it right, we might ask the question, how do we eat and drink worthily? Well, we do it by following the orders, following the instructions, following the commandments that are given in verse number 28. And in verse 28, it has for us, but let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. There are only two commands given in this entire passage of Scripture, to examine and to eat. The only two commands given in the entire passage, examine and eat. We are commanded to examine ourselves, and we are commanded to eat. You see, it's never about whether to eat or not. It's a question about how to go about doing it. Are we going to go about doing it worthily or unworthily? And this is a serious thing. So in verse 29 it says, For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So if we come to the Lord's table and if we eat without examining ourselves, we bring damnation. Now, do not confuse damnation with eternal damnation and going to hell. That is not what is being said. In fact, the exact same word damnation here in verse 29 becomes judgment in verse 31. It becomes condemnation in verse 32. The idea is that there will be a judgment that will come on us as a result of flippantly approaching this sacred event. Not discerning the Lord's body. Not properly understanding what the proper place for the church is. Not properly judging its importance in your life as a Christian. In your experience in churches over the years, maybe you've heard people say something like this at the Lord's Supper. Well, if you're not saved, then you should let this bread and this cup pass and, and don't partake of it. And if you're not willing to examine yourself and your sins, well, let this bread and cup pass and don't partake of it. Maybe you've heard something like that. But you find that nowhere in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. There's no provision given for a selfish, carnal Christian to continue willingly in his or her sin and somehow magically avoid the condemnation or the judgment simply by not eating a little piece of bread. Let me remind you again of what happened back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 it says, It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you. And such fornication, it is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from you. For I verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such an one 
unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. There was terrible sin in the church. Everybody knew about it, and no one was doing anything about it. And Paul says, are you crazy? Get that guy out. And that's what he says going into verse 6. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out, therefore, the old leaven, that ye collectively may be a new lump, as ye collectively are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover... Now, why is he making that connection? Oh, yeah, it's the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and they ate unleavened bread and drank unleavened drink. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast... Not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The church is not allowed to keep the leaven in the lump. You're not allowed to keep the sin in the body. Purge out the leaven of malice and wickedness. Live your lives with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That's what he's saying. And then, he says, then in verse 8, keep the feast. Keep the feast. Eat the bread. Drink the juice. To eat and to drink worthily means that you examine yourselves of any sin, hatred, wickedness, and confess it and turn from it right now. Then eat with a clean heart and a clean conscience. Because not doing so is to your detriment. And that's what verse 30 says, that as a result, many are weak. Many are sickly among you, among your very group. There are many who have no spiritual power. They have no spiritual health. They're weak and they're sickly. Why? Because there was no self-examination. There was no self-judgment. There was no discerning of the Lord's body. That's why they're weak and they're sickly. Oh, he goes on and he says, oh, and many others sleep. Well, you know what that means. That's premature death. That means that God took them home early. God took them out. After a prolonged period of rebellion, refusing to keep this ordinance faithfully, worthily yeah it's just a physical thing and yeah it's just symbolic but it's an ordinance and it's really really important and you're not allowed to let it pass you're commanded to keep it and you're commanded to keep it with the right heart attitude by examining yourself and cleaning up anything that you need that's why it says in verse 31 for if we would judge ourselves there's no need for condemnation there's no need to be judged If we judge ourselves, we'll not be judged. That's what it says. So the only people who should not participate in the Lord's Supper are people who are not saved. If you're not saved and you don't want to be, okay, well then let it pass. But if you name the name of Jesus Christ, you examine yourself right now and you eat of that bread and you drink of that cup. And that preserves the unity of the body of Christ. That guarantees that we understand and live in the power of community. That makes sure that we're not Corinthian in our Christian lives. Okay, if the musicians will come up and the guys will come forward, we're going to pass out the bread and the cup as we go. And uh, we're going to have some background music. What I'd like for you to do is this. It's going to take a few minutes for everybody to be served so you guys can immediately start. Come on, let's get going. Immediately start passing out the plates. As you receive the cup, in consideration for the whole body, we will wait until everyone is served. We will eat and we will drink all together. But as you receive the cup and as you're holding it in your hand, let me encourage you, take this time. And just pray silently yourself to the Lord. 
Take this time and examine your heart. Take this time and ask God, is there anything in me that needs to be cleansed? Is there anything in me that you need to have changed? And as he speaks to your heart, will you just confess that to him? Will you repent of those things he might point out to you? And will you then just allow him to cleanse your heart as you receive this cup? Just let's have a time of silent prayer together.
Lord Jesus, as we come before you, we're so thankful for what you did for us. We could never, ever have dreamed of being saved from our sins without you. And Lord, as we hold this small cup in our hands and it has this juice, the fruit of the vine, the color of blood, and a small piece of bread that represents your body broken in many pieces, all that you went through, your death for us. But Lord, we praise you and we thank you. You didn't stay dead. You were buried. You rose again, triumphant over death and hell and the grave and offer to us the free gift of eternal life. And Lord, as having received it as your children, we are so very thankful for all the ways that you continue to love and restore us. And Lord, we confess to you where we failed. We confess to you the problems and the selfish things that we've said and done and thought. And we ask you to cleanse our hearts again and to just join us again to you and to one another. And if there be people here who have something against a brother or a sister, well, immediately after we're done doing this, having confessed their, their sin and their, bared their soul and their heart to you, may they just go and get that right. And everybody be able to clear up any accounts that we might have, not just with you, but with one another in the body because, well, this is a, an event for all of us to take of together. And we are so very thankful. So thank you for loving us enough, not just to do that, but then to leave this ordinance for the church to remind us, you know we need to be reminded that this symbolizes our continued fellowship in you and with you in our personal sanctification. Keep us clean, Lord Jesus. Thank you for this blessing. We pray these things in your holy name. It says in verse 24, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. And after the same manner also, he took the cup. And when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. And Lord Jesus, we rejoice and we thank you for all the ways that you provide for us. We're not worthy of it, but we are, we are thankful. And I pray that our heart's offering to you is acceptable. We pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. Well, all, let's all stand up and... Uh, we're going to conclude this service.